0: Hi, I'm Brett Judkowitz. I'm the director of photography on Scream, and this is The Go Creative Show.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Brett Judkowitz, director of photography for Scream 2022. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, there is so much to talk about with this Scream, you know, jumping onto a legendary franchise. Um, Of course, some of the bigger, more, you know, uh, creepy and crazy kills uh, in in the series. Of course, the way that you light horror for daytime and nighttime, there's just so much to discuss. Uh, But before we get there, I want to quickly mention our sponsor, Filmmakers Academy. Have you checked out Filmmakers Academy yet? Do it! Because not only do you get 10% off by using our promo code that you'll find on our website, you can also master your craft over at FilmmakersAcademy.com. You're going to hear more about them and our promo code later in the episode. And of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All Things Go Creative Show at GoCreativeShow.com. So, Brett, I want to first start with... You know, this is your first time working within the Scream franchise, and it's something that's been established over decades now. Yeah. How does it feel to get that call and know that you are now responsible for the next installment of Scream?
0: Well, it's both, you know, really cool and, and really nerve-wracking, I think, you know, being involved in, in a franchise that has such a history and such a fan base kind of built in. It's definitely, it's the first movie I've done that kind of Already has a fan base built into it. You know, normally you do a movie and you hope that people like it or are interested in what you're doing. But this one was, you know, an anticipation 10 years in the making from, from the last one. So, um, it was both, you know, exciting and humbling and, and kind of, you know, anxiety inducing to be kind of, uh, Tasked with um, you know kind of taking over the series, especially because um, the previous films had all been directed by by Wes Craven, and the last um, last three were were shot by the same DP. So kind of coming in as this new you know new blood and new kind of team, it was a lot of responsibility. And I think you know I think what helped for me was. Having already worked with the directors, this uh, radio silence is the, the team, the directing duo and the producer, um, Chad uh, Valela and Matt bettinelli Open and Tyler Gillette. Um, having worked with them before on, on this movie, Ready or Not, uh, I felt a lot more comfortable kind of going into that with them, I think.
1: Did you feel like you had the freedom to bring your look to it, to bring something that is, you know— your style, even though it's already been an established franchise and has an expectation.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, something that we, we certainly talked about early on, um, the directors and, and myself about the look was, you know, we wanted it to fit into the universe of, of Scream for sure, but we really wanted to feel kind of comfortable with making it our own and and kind of establishing the visual language that we felt was right for this particular story in this particular time. So, um, you know, one of the early conversations that we had was whether or not to shoot anamorphic because all of the films previously were, were shot on anamorphic lenses. And, you know, we really, we tested both. We tested anamorphic lenses. We tested spherical lenses to try to find what felt right. And, um, through that process, just kept coming back to the anamorphic. Like this, this feels right. This feels not only like our movie, but it feels like it fits into the existing world. So I would say, you know, we were conscious of kind of fitting into the universe visually, but um, very much felt kind of freedom to put our own stamp on it.
1: How do you describe the the universe of Scream visually? Like what what does that what does that mean to you? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think you know, we we looked
0: at Scream, the first Scream, the original Scream was our was uh was the film in the series that we looked at the most in terms of inspiration. Um and what's interesting about the first Scream, the original Scream is that it's not a very dark movie. You know, you think like horror movies dark and moody and that's what makes it scary is that you can't see what's coming around the corner or or, you know whatever it is but what's interesting and and kind of impressive about scream is that it's not you know there are dark moments in it but it's not a super dark movie um whether that was just kind of a, a product of you know a conscious decision or a product of how the movies were being made at the time you know i don't totally know but but I think it's a testament kind of to Wes Craven's direction of it and the, the cast and kind of everything else that was involved in, in creating those visuals. And for us, what we found in the photography most compelling was just kind of the tension in the camera movements. So that's something we talked about a lot. A lot of developing shots that kind of start in one place and move to another and kind of Develop through the scene and and these kind of creeping camera movements. So, a lot in the kind of camera movement and and creating tension and through framing and composition and, and movement was something that that we talked about a lot.
1: And I think there's no better no better example of that than um, in the in the home where Wes there's Judy and Wes in their house. And you are like kind of creeping around the corner. And there's throughout that mm-hmm. whole scene. Now, Wes's mother is dead outside. We know that. He doesn't know that. Um, gets out of the shower, he's wandering through the house, and there's you're constantly having these moments where there's like a door that opens, and you mm-hmm. expect as an audience member that when the door shuts, you know, the the killer's gonna be there. And you do this multiple times throughout that scene. And I thought that scene in particular was a really interesting exercise in horror movie tropes that are turning themselves the opposite way. Like, they're they're giving you an expectation mm-hmm. that just isn't there. And through that process of sort of knowing that your audience kind of knows what you're trying to do, you created a lot of tension and a lot of fear. And I thought you made that moment when the killer does reveal um, really impactful. So I'd love to dig a little bit more into that scene and sort of how you created tension with camera movement and you know, kind of playing on the expectations of your audience there.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, that was a really fun scene to shoot and obviously very aware of kind of the, you know, almost absurdity of it. You know, the fact that we keep teasing that, you know, ghost face is going to pop out from, you know, behind the cabinet, behind the fridge, behind, you know, whatever it is. And, and, you know, just when you think, okay, maybe he's actually not, then that's when, of course, that's when he, that's when he appears. But, um, you know, we, we, most of that sequence was shot uh, on a steady cam. We, we like to, to use the steady cam, generally speaking, but in this scene also in particular, like it really f- gives a kind of sense of this that there's a presence or there could be a presence in occupying the space at the same time. I think. Why do you think, me, like, what,
1: what is it about the steady cam that gives you that feeling?
0: Well, I think it's, it's, the kind of floatiness and the movement of it, but in a way, as opposed to handheld, which you might think would be kind of more like a human POV, because it's you know moving like a human would be. There's kind of um, you know this kind of ethereal or, or you know like sense of like a uh, like a phantom or you know something something that's, that's lurking but that's larger than life it's not human necessarily it's like a, a more abstract presence so i think that was for me when we use the steadicam you know aside from creating kind of dynamic movements with the characters suggesting this idea of a, a presence some sort of presence lurking in the in the space was kind of how we used it
1: And I think that what I also like is that you play on vulnerability in that moment. Like at the beginning of the scene, Wes is in the shower and you think that is the natural place to kill someone because it's just kind of a classic thing to do. You don't do it. Then you go into the moments where doors are opening and you expect something to be behind them. You don't do it. And like you said, you wait right to the last second where you think maybe maybe he's not going to die. Maybe he escapes mm-hmm. the scene. And then that's kind of when you get there. But it's an interesting play on vulnerability because we can all identify with that moment. During the day, you're wandering around your house. You feel comfortable. It's your space. Um, but having a feeling like something is there, uh, was that also you know, could you also attribute that feeling to the steady camera? Were there other things you were doing to kind of play up that vulnerability?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few times, you know, we 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 were both kind of shooting close to um, to Dylan, the actor, and then we'd have certain shots that kind of pulled back that were more from a distance, more shooting through, you know, a doorway or shooting dirty through some sort of foreground element that, that in addition to the movement of the study cam, I think suggested this a little bit of this voyeurism. So kind of combining those two elements, I think helped create this sense of, you know, something is just around the corner, something is just about, just about to happen.
1: You'd mentioned earlier that Scream One, the original, was a big inspiration for you when sort of developing the language of this of this new um, this new film. And one thing you mentioned as well is that Scream was bright. I mean, they even mentioned they even have a mention of it at the very beginning of the film mm-hmm. in, the, in the opening scene. They talk about you know films in the '90s being overly lit, uh, horror mm-hmm. films being overly lit. Um, it, it, so when I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, you know the challenge that you must have had to have to make something creepy and scary in daylight. I mean, you don't have the benefit of hiding in the shadows. You don't have the benefit of nighttime. Um, How did you overcome those challenges? What were some of your techniques to make daytime scary? I think a lot you know, I think in
0: this, specifically in this sequence um, that uh, Judy dies in, that that's kind of our big daytime kill scene, daytime exterior kill scene. So I think um a lot of that was just, you know, how do we make Ghostface feel powerful and imposing and threatening and scary through just, you know, the lens that we choose, the size that we choose, the angle that we, you know, that we shot him. So in that scene, you know, there's... A couple of shots, you know, we have shots kind of slightly wider angle looking up at him as he's attacking. The beginning of that also starts with the steady cam shot that kind of he pops into suddenly. We're following Judy down the driveway in the steady cam from behind and he kind of comes out of nowhere. So the surprise element, I think, is part of that as well. Like, and, and it's interesting, I think, because it definitely plays with expectations. Like you don't expect Ghostface to be so brazen and, and, you know, just kill in the middle of the suburbs in broad daylight, which I think was something the directors really liked and, and kind of wanted to embrace and, and, you know, felt that it had a lot of shock kind of value to it. Like, wow, he's actually just kind of, he doesn't care. He's just, you know, doing this out in broad daylight. So I think it was, you know, finding ways both to create, you know, his, entrance into the into the scene in a kind of surprising and shocking way. And then from there, really playing with this idea of kind of making him feel powerful and the victim feel less powerful in, in those moments.
1: So what were some of the ways that you did that? You mentioned Steadicam. Um, what was the lens choice for that moment and why?
0: I think when he, when we're, once he's kind of taken Judy to the ground, I don't remember exactly what lens we were on, but I'm sure it was, Um, wide-ish maybe uh, 35 or so uh, kind of really low trying to look up at him to kind of feel his. you know I think that what the wide angle lens does kind of there's like a slight kind of distortion to it being close, close to the character on a wide angle lens wide angle lens makes him feel kind of otherworldly and more imposing and kind of more threatening in that way and very kind of like you feel the presence of the camera with, with Ghostface in that moment. So it was you know it was a combination of that looking up at him I think also. But there were some you know this I think it may have been one of the final shots of the sequence if I'm remembering correctly was this kind of wide tableau um, where you just see you know it's a very wide shot of the house you know we're low we're almost on the on the um, sidewalk there on the walkway. Um, and, you know, you have this kind of like American flag fluttering in the in the wind and just this kind of like, I think we all, you know, the directors and I both responded to this kind of really showing the space and, and showing, you know, that he, Ghostface was kind of brazen enough to just do this in the middle of this space and the kind of like shock of that and, and really seeing that not just in close up, but But getting kind of these pulled back wider shots, I think we were probably creeping in slowly, kind of slow push in towards this action and framed in this kind of like, you know, very white picket fence kind of suburban perfect house. And to see this kind of brutal act taking place within that space, I think, was was part of it as well.
1: What about lighting techniques to make, you know, daytime feel scary? I
0: think in in this case, it was about timing, about, you know, scouting and understanding what the path of the sun was at this location and kind of choosing as best as I could within, you know, the confines of trying to make a, a movie, um, what time would be ideal to shoot this in order to keep them backlit, to to keep them, you know, out of this kind of direct sun. Um, I think there was some dappling from the trees, which was helpful, but for me it was, you know, was, don't want to have them kind of brightly front lit, you know, whether it's backlight or, or through the trees, like something to kind of keep it, to give it a little more shape and a little less flatness and a little more kind of visual interest. So Um, I think we wound up kind of organizing our day. I think maybe we were outside and then went inside and then came back out just to, to get the light kind of right for this sequence.
1: And for you that uh, the correct lighting was trying to stay backlit. I'm assuming you were trying to avoid just, you know, noontime direct overhead light, trying to bring a little shape to it. Um, Anything else I'm thinking that, that you think could be valuable when people may, you know, perhaps in our audience or in situations when they need to be outside doing exteriors for a horror film, was there anything else that you learned from that experience that you could pass on to us?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is, is timing is really as best you can, you know, knowing in advance what the sun's going to do. Obviously you're at the mercy of clouds You don't know exactly what that's going to do in advance. But but in terms of, you know, sometimes I would use larger solid frames for negative fill. I don't tend to do much lighting with electric lights outside during the day, unless I have a really specific reason to do that. Um, But we were using, um, we used a lot of overheads. Um, We used fly swatters. 20 by 20 foot. Um, What I found was really nice was the quarter black silk, which is a specific black version of uh, of this diffusion silk that creates a a kind of a lightly shadowed, almost mimics shadow from leaves and a tree branch. Um, Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have this, you know, normally when you use a white, a big white silk, you'll get, it'll glow from so you'll diffuse the sunlight coming through it if it's white, but it'll also glow like a light source. So what the black silk does is it eliminates that glow, which I found was nice, for,
1: That is awesome. for a yeah, horror movie. I'm looking at it right now. Um, I'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. But you're right that when you are using white silks, it does create – it creates kind of like a light source in and of itself because of yeah. the glow. So this is almost like the black uh, – the quarter silk black is almost like the – it's almost like the pairing of a negative fill with um, with a silk as well. Is the quarter? I'm assuming when I see quarter that there's halves as well. And like, is that is that a, is that a measure of how how um, uh, thick the silk is?
0: There may be. I know the black silks in general are not are less common. We used quarter black silk and quarter black grid. Which was heavier? Um, the quarter black grid was heavier, so that's more obviously like a quarter grid cloth, except black, um, and that created more of a deeper, um, a deeper shade. But yeah, you're you're right that you know when you use these big white silks, they become a light source themselves. They do diffuse the light coming through them, but now it's a giant twenty foot light source, basically. So you. So I found in general, I like them, but especially for horror movies or things when you were trying to create some mood, you know, you can cut the sun and and you're not getting that kind of glow like you do from a from a white overhead uh, fabric.
1: I love that. That's a good tip. And like I said, I, I, I put in I'll put a link to that in the show notes so you guys can check it out. This is not an expensive addition to your kit and Mm -hmm. could really make all the difference when you're doing exteriors like this, or even interiors when you don't want any bounce coming off of your silk. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's interesting. Can you talk to me about the camera package and lens package that you chose for scream and why?
0: Sure. We, um, we worked with Panavision um, who were super helpful. And it was, it was a strange time because it was, we started shooting, I think in, October of 2020, late September, we were prepping starting in August. And so we were, you know, one of the first bigger shows coming back out of the pandemic shutdown and um, Panavision, you know, we were kind of lucky in that there weren't a lot of shows competing for, you know, Panavision equipment, Panavision lenses, but also At the same time, a lot of their stuff was stuck on trucks for from shows that got shut down for COVID. Mm. Um, But they were super helpful. I tested. We tested. um, Like I said in the beginning, we we did test spherical lenses and anamorphic lenses. Ultimately, decided that anamorphic lenses were um, were the way to go. And we shot um, Alexa Mini. I've just you know my last five films or so have been. Alexa. It's just, you know, for digital, it's, I haven't so far found something that I liked more. Um, Did
1: you use the large format LF, uh, mini LF or just the regular? No, we standard, used the
0: regular, yeah, the regular Alexa mini. Um, we briefly talked about the LF. I think it, it might've been more of an option if we were shooting spherical. For me, I just, you know, I knew kind of, I knew the Alexa mini well. I knew that um, with the anamorphic lenses, we were already going to get um, a very shallow depth of field. Um, and to me, it didn't seem necessary to to add the kind of large format to the equation in, in, in that case. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I don't think we tested any other cameras. I think kind of from the beginning it was... It would be Alexa. Um, it was more about you know the anamorphic versus spherical, and we we settled on um, the G series anamorphic lenses that um, Guy McVicker at Panavision detuned so that they were kind of closer to the look of the C series, which you know we really, I really loved the look of the C series. The directors really loved it. But they were a little too unpredictable, we felt like. We felt like, you know, on the wider open side of things, they got a little bit kind of more funky and expressive than, than we, we wanted for this. So we were just, we were fortunate that Panavision was able to kind of take these Gs, which are more modern lenses, and, and give them a little more of the character of the C series.
1: Do you use any filtration on your lens package? We
0: used uh basically no, I tend not to because I try to I try to find lenses that have the character and kind of this softness or Christmas crispness depending on the project. Or Christmas, um, I guess. I Christmas, mean. yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> you know. Um so we didn't I think we used. you know, we had we carried a some light um Hollywood Black Magic and some black Pro Mist. we may have used in some of the close-ups with some actors, um, occasionally, but for the most part, you know, just ND is
1: standard. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's take a quick break and talk about Filmmakers Academy, and in particular, one of the courses that I absolutely love. It's called Lighting for Horror. I wanted to bring Shane Herbert. He is the instructor of that course on the show real quick to tell you why that course is so great and maybe give you a little tip about Lighting for Horror. So, Shane, welcome.
2: Well, thank you so much, Ben. And yeah, I mean, lighting for horror, there's obviously night you can light for horror. You have the shadow and all that stuff. But I wanted to do day horror because, uh, and this course is all about taking those windows that are so expansive and bringing them down with neutral density. And how do you do that quickly and, and easy? Well, I use this fabric called Roscoe scrim. And instead of trying to use neutral density that all crinkles up or Roscoe scrim is a fabric, it lays flat to the window and it takes your stop down about two stops. Uh, so the windows get more moody and you're able to really control that light and bring out the shadows and create that deep, deep shadows where you never know the killer is lingering. <laughs>
1: I love it. And that and so much more is in the course called Lighting for Horror. That course, as well as so many others, are available on filmmakersacademy.com. So check it out now for yourself. What about a LUT? Were you, did you make a custom LUT for onset purposes for your DIT?
0: We did, yeah. We worked with um, Skip Kimball at Company Three and created a show LUT. Um, we, I generally speaking, I I like to create a specific LUT, a specific show LUT, going into it. I don't like just you know using Rec 709 or, or K1S1 and and you know saying we'll just figure it out later or we'll define it later because I like I like to kind of I'd like everybody on set to be seeing what I think I want the film to look like. And, you know, for the editorial and the daily, it's for people to get used to that look um, rather than, you know, I I find people, people really do get used to the look when they spend, you know, a year editing it in front of the directors for months and the producers and the studio and everybody is, you know, seeing this, the way it looks. So to try to then reinvent that later on, I, I, I find it, better to try to get closer to to what what I'd like the film to look like, you know, on set.
1: I find that in my own work, doing commercials, and people aren't looking at this stuff for over a year. They're looking at it for a week, two weeks, maybe, Mm -hmm. and they still just, you know, you'll shoot on Rec. 709, you'll do dailies on Rec. 709, you'll edit in Rec. 709. All the drafts are Rec. 709, and then all of a sudden, the last step when it goes to color, I mean, it, it does look better, but you're so used to seeing it a certain way that clients are kind of like, "Oh, that? Did you change something?" <laughs> like you'll yeah. you'll get stuff like that, and uh, totally. it's amazing to me how easily your eyes can just adapt to it, and then all of a sudden, that's it. That's the look. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, and for me, I don't. I I generally make one master LUT, and that's what we did on screen, just one show LUT for the whole show. But the the only thing that I did was I made, um, I had Skip make us kind of three versions. Um, One kind of add exposure and then one that's slightly pulled down darker and then another one that's pulled down even a little more, but small amounts, like a third stop down and half a stop down. Because sometimes if I'm looking at a scene, I'm like, I want, you know, I want this to be darker, but I don't want to you know, I don't really want to close down the lens and lose that information. I'll switch to the darker LUT. Didn't happen that often, but that's something that I've found in the past has been helpful. Or if the director's like, Oh, let's make it darker. But I'm thinking to myself, well, I'd like to preserve some information there. I'm not just going to close it down half a step. I'll just throw the, you know, slightly darker LUT on there. So, you know, we have a darker image, but we're preserving the data. Um, from the
1: camera. So that's interesting. So you would use your LUT to control exposure for kind of onset viewing versus, you know, iris and shutter speed or whatever you may do in order to retain just so that you have flexibility in post. That's kind of an interesting approach, or at least it seems, I-, I haven't heard anybody come on the show and talk about having three different exposures in their custom LUTs for this circumstance.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's also very, I would say, you know, 90 plus percent of the time we're using the normal kind of lut and i'm exposing as i normally would it's just in certain instances with you know night exteriors specifically or or things that um, that i want to be dark in the final grade it's basically instead of being like you know exposing it a little brighter and knowing that six months, eight months, nine months later, I'm going to pull it down. It's like, I'm just going to pull it down now. So everybody sees that in the dailies, but I'm also giving myself a little room to to window things in the DI or, or you know, know that I have just a little bit more information there than, than what is showing
1: on the monitors. How many cameras were you rolling on the film?
0: Uh, we had two full-time cameras and we used the B-camera um, quite a bit. I'd say, you know, probably 80% of the time we were able to find a place for the B camera to pick something off. And, um, sometimes it was, uh, something that was on our shot list already. Sometimes it was just hey, go find something if you can, see if you can squeeze in there. And, and the directors, they really like having that kind of option, um, you know, to have the B camera trying to pick off something that's, interesting. And, and, so we did that quite a bit.
1: Did you operate at all? I did not. Do no. you ever on your own projects? Um, I
0: used to, you know, I came up doing independent films where it was, you know, you did the, was the only option was to operate. <laughs> yes. There was no, there was no other option. Um, so, and I love operating, um, and the film, the film that I did with these directors previously, Ready or Not, was the first film that I didn't operate on. Um and it took a little bit of getting used to, but I actually now I feel like I can't imagine trying to operate at the same time because I'll you know, I'll be able to, you know, find the frame with the directors and the operators, leave them to it, and then I can go and talk to the gaffer and you know, dial in the lighting. Meanwhile, the, you know, the key grip and the operators are figuring out, you know, where the dolly exactly is going to be leveling the tracker, you know, the operator can can start to, you know, dial all that in while I'm off dealing with the lighting at the same time. So I found it, you know, especially with two cameras, also because I want to be able to watch them both at the same time. And I would never be able to do that if I was operating one. Um, I think if I, If I did a a single camera movie at some point, I'd be more kind of interested in in operating, but I found it, my last few movies, very kind of, I can't imagine trying to operate, actually, on top of everything else.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's I mean, there's quite a bit to pay attention to, for sure. Um, So what is your direction to your operators like when you like you just mentioned you're, you're working with them you do you just kind of tell them this is kind of what I'm looking for go find something that works are you leaving a lot of that up to the operators or like what what is your kind of system and how do you communicate with your operators
0: no I'm generally pretty specific um, you know we'll use um, I'll use Artemis on my phone to Find a lens with the directors. And usually if it's a, if it's some sort of move, we'll kind of pick the exact marks of the start and end mark, um, of the move. Or if it's a steady cam, we'll, you know, rehearse it with a a stand in and show the steady cam operator. So it's, it's all, you know, generally speaking, um, pretty specific. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm very kind of collaborative and especially with my operators want them to feel like they, can suggest things or, and often they do and often it works and sometimes it doesn't, but, you know, I I like kind of keeping that line of communication open and, and, you know, being open to their creativity, I think is great. Um, I think generally speaking, you know, I'm fairly specific about the moves, but open to, you know, their interpretation if they notice something or
1: have an idea. Is there a type of is there a type of skill set unique to b-cam operators that is particularly appealing to you i mean it seems like they're often responsible for finding things more than more than a cam and there there's a, it seems like there might be some kind of an interesting freedom in being a b-camera operator i'm curious i mean for just the camera operators and aspiring camera operators listening now um is there something about I guess what are the qualities of a B cam operator that you look for when you're forming your team?
0: Well, I think for a B cam operator, uh, for me, it's it's all about somebody who's kind of always looking for something, you know, is always kind of paying attention, watching the rehearsal, um, and you know, maybe maybe taking stills on on Artemis and kind of unobtrusively, you know coming up to me and be like, oh, I saw this. Or, what do you think about this? And, you know, it's kind of like a, a way to do that. That's, um, that's kind of unobtrusive, but also thoughtful. I don't know. It's like kind of be a fly on the wall, find some things. If it feels right to suggest it, do. Um, if it doesn't, don't. But kind of always be looking out for things, I think, is a is the biggest thing. And it's, you know, hiring an operator for me and we're very lucky with two great operators um, based out of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is where we're, we're shooting who are both fantastic. Um, but you never kind of, you never really know. I mean, you can interview an operator, you could talk to their ref, you know references, DPs have worked with them before, but until you're there and in, you know, seeing what they're, how they're reacting, what their instincts are, what their kind of presence is on set, you don't totally know. Um, But yeah, I think for a B camera operator, just always be there, always be kind of looking for something, paying attention, watching the rehearsals, thinking about how you might fit in.
1: Almost seems like documentary experience or like news experience or something like that would be (laughs) valuable for a B cam op, just that, that hunt for a shot. Um, it just it sounds like a fun role. It really does.
0: Yeah, I think it's you know I think for us on this movie in particular, um, we did use the B camera a lot, which is good. Sometimes you do shows where it's m- way more kind of A camera specific, and the B camera team is kind of you know off to the side, um, you know, sadly kind of waiting their turn. But um, but yeah, for sure, you know, just that kind of almost documentary mindset, like, um, but understanding the story and understanding, you know, not just, Oh, this is cool looking, but how it might fit emotionally in the scene.
1: Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about the hospital scenes in the scream of mm-hmm. which you have quite a bit. I mean, a, a, a good portion of the movie takes place in the hospital and um, at two, in two different instances, you have kind of your daytime, typical interior hospital lighting, and then you have uh, the, the, evening kind of electricity is out hospital lighting. And something that I found with just as a viewer, um, watching hospital scenes and talking to other people that, and and we had the DP of, um, Halloween recently. Mm -hmm. Oh, I I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll I'll look for it when you're talking so I can probably credit. Michael Simmons, my God, of course (laughs) did the last two Halloweens. Um, and I think he's doing the, the, the third one too. Um, He shot the second Halloween in a hospital. Almost the whole thing is in the hospital. <laughs> and we talked about how do you make environments that are traditionally horribly lit look interesting, look cinematic, but also don't look unrealistic. That's that's a tough challenge, shooting in a place like a hospital or, or a bank or an office building. I mean, that is a challenge. So I'd love to talk to you about the way you approached the—we'll start with the daytime kind of traditional lighting hospital scenes. In Scream.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was a concern going into it, you know, we, knowing how much material that we had to do in the hospital. Um, I think for me, for the daytime scenes, the scenes that take place in the room have the advantage of, you know, having a window. And so the hospital the hospital was a set was built on stage, you know, the hallway in the room. So everything was, you know, we were lighting that you know, as a day, but we were inside of a,
1: you had control over it. Yeah.
0: Inside of a stage. Um, so I think the advantage to, to, having the window light is that you can create some shape that way. You're not kind of beholden to this overhead fluorescent lighting. That's common in hospital hallways. Um, so we, you know, I was pushing light through the, the windows in those situations um, and just, creating some shape and mixing color temperatures like the there's lights above the beds and in the room that played slightly warmer and the daylight was slightly cooler. And then we had some overhead sources too that were slightly greener. So kind of mixing these different colors to create something that didn't feel as flat. And then, you know, using the window light to kind of motivate some shape in that way for the daytime scenes Um, in the room where there was windows in the hallway there weren't any windows and we really kind of embraced that overhead look. I think we, I think I wound up um, turning off every other overhead. So when you're kind of looking at a longer shot of the hallway, it's more kind of pools of light, less kind of consistently lit. Or when the characters walk through, you know, they go through light and shadow more. It's not so flat. So I I did do that, but we did for the, the, you know, kind of pre- powers-out look, um, embrace that it was a hospital and they were overhead lights. And um, we kind of like that contrast of them shifting into this other mode.
1: Yeah, you don't have the benefits of like, well, I mean, you you do have practicals. You have the lights in the ceiling, but you don't have, you know, like (laughs) nice-looking lamps (laughs) lamps and things. I mean, you just don't have that. Um, Yeah. And you also kind of need to make it look realistic, uh, but it also has to be, you know, it can't, it has to look good. Like people have to look, people have to look good. Um, and I think yeah. you guys did a really interesting job of that and leaning into it. I think you're right where at some point you just have to deal with what it is that you have and make yeah. it work. And there is an expectation of what hospitals look like. So, you know, that.
0: Yeah. I mean, sense. When, when we were building, you know, the art department was building the set we had the advantage, or I had the advantage of, of, you know, I could do, I could tell them exactly where to put the overhead fixtures. I could tell them, you know, I could have my department rig some sort of, you know, and I played around with all these ideas of, you know, rigging lights from above that that shot kind of through the openings that, so it kind of felt like a practical, but was more focused. But, you know, every time I kind of worked through these ideas, I was like, it doesn't, it just doesn't feel like it's going to be real. So we wound up kind of just doing real fixtures with our own LED tubes in them so we could control the color and dim and all that stuff. But, um, you know, it's funny even having the freedom to kind of do almost within reason, whatever we wanted, we kind of
1: wound up feeling like
0: the best thing was just the most kind of realistic thing for the hallway, which is these overhead lights
1: you guys were shooting during the pandemic. So I had a conversation with Alex Brooks, uh, Alice Brooks, who was the cinematographer of Tick, Tick, Boom. And mm-hmm. she was talking about how when they were filming, they weren't able to use haze or any sort of atmosphere. It was just nobody knew how, you know, would the virus travel in it and blah, blah, blah. There was just no There was a lot of unknowns. Um, were you also in the same situation? Were you able to use haze during the filming of Scream?
0: Uh, we were able to use. There was a a long kind of. It was touch and go for a minute. It was there was a big kind of testing protocol. Um, you know, somebody had to come in with special equipment, and there had to be a very specific level of haze that we could not exceed, and you know, had to be monitored. Um, but we we were able, thankfully, to use haze. So we we did. Um, use it a fair amount. Yeah, I can imagine that's just. But it was it was helpful. a process to get it cleared, and we weren't sure that it would happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, back to the hospital, just to kind of finish yeah. up our conversation because we talked about kind of the daytime traditional interiors of the hospital, but now let's talk about when the electricity goes out and you have a little bit more room to play. You can create kind of a a, a scarier environment now because you don't have the lights. Talk to me about the way that you approached the, the scenes after the electricity goes out. How did you make that feel and look as though we no longer have electricity in the hospital?
0: Yeah, it was interesting. That that kind of idea came out of um, conversation with the directors because it wasn't scripted that the power goes out. And yeah, I think it was scripted. You know, there's this loud noise and she hears something and then she goes to investigate. But, you know, when I was reading it, and thinking about, you know, how much time we were spending in this location and, and something that could kind of heighten the tension or the experience, you know, I suggested, what if, you know, Ghostface kills the power and, you know, some sort of emergency lighting comes on. Um, so that kind of got worked into the, into the story that way. Um, and the, what we wound up doing were these, Kind of under lights under the handrails, which was really something that um, that our production designer Chad Keith he was just showing me kind of general hospital reference photos that he had when he was talking about building the set, and one of them had this weird under handrail lighting, and we both were like, "That's strange and interesting and cool." So we you know kind of worked that into the idea of, of. okay, the overhead lights are killed, but these kind of emergency lights that might lead you to an exit come on under the handrails. Um, So that was kind of the genesis of the idea. I liked having, you know, a lighting change in that moment, an excuse to make things darker than we've seen them before, creepier than we've seen them before. Um, But yeah, that's kind of how it it started.
1: And probably, and it's in like the most important kill of, the of the whole movie. I mean, this is <laughs> this is when one of the most beloved characters goes, and um, yeah. so it's just in a really important moment. And I can't even imagine that scene without having some kind of darkness. It just seemed like it wouldn't have played right.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I'm glad that we we kind of wound up um, going for it. I think you know I had a bunch of discussions about these like under handrail lights with the directors and they were kind of open, but a little bit like, how is it going to look? Like, I don't know. And eventually I was like, if they'll, you know, if we, if we can afford to put them in, I'm just going to put them in. And then, you know, if we don't like it, we don't have to use it. Um, and so thankfully we did. And then once we saw it on, you know, we're like, oh, wow, I can't, can't imagine having done it another way.
1: So we've had spoilers all throughout this episode. So there's really no reason to once again alert people. But this is the moment where Dewey gets killed. And it's a big moment for the franchise, for the film, and I, I'm curious how you uh, approach this scene knowing that it had so much weight to it, and that we were going to be getting rid of a character that everybody loves. So it's, it's got to be done right. It has to be done almost respectfully, in a way, for mm-hmm. the character, if, if, there's, if that even makes sense. But um, So tell me what's kind of going through your mind as you're planning the way to film this moment.
0: I think, you know, what we talked about was really wanting to the lead up to him, his final fight with Ghostface to really feel uh, like a hero moment, like a a Western, you know, he's like a sheriff kind of coming back to town for, you know, the last time. And um, so we did these kind of dolly shots with him coming out of the elevator, kind of low angle, looking up, he's reloading his gun, you know, down at his feet, crunching on the glass. Like, we really wanted to kind of milk that moment uh, so it's all about kind of giving him these kind of hero shots leading up to the the fight and then you know getting into the fight i we didn't do anything specifically different within the fight than we would otherwise do is kind of you know we liked this kind of visceral handheld um movement and and you know following the action and um it was really about kind of giving him his kind of you know and old West kind of hero, you know, sheriff moment leading up into that. And then the final shot, which I think is, is probably one of my favorite shots in the in the film, is where we're cam- kind of cameras pulling away down the hallway and you see Ghostface standing over, you know, Dewey on the ground and just kind of pulling away from him for the last time. So it's kind of the, the bookends of that is really where we play these kind of you know, hero or hero moments for him.
1: Yeah, I love that shot too. It's almost like you get you get like a minute as an audience member to just cope with it <laughs> in a way. It really it was a it, it was. I don't even know if respectful is the right word. I'm only saying that because it's just like a beloved character that's been there the whole franchise. But like you kind of gave it a little bit more weight. You gave it a little bit more attention, and I think it was probably that shot that kind of made you feel that way. I was actually going to ask you if you had a favorite shot of the film and to break it down for us, but that you may have already answered that, (laughs) that question. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, are there any other shots that just you think about, you know, looking back on the film that you just, when you're watching, you're like, damn, that was, that was great.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean that one for sure. I think the other one, and maybe it's like a couple of shots, um, is when uh Vince is killed towards the beginning of the movie when he's uh in the parking lot outside the bar and the kind of headlights from the from the car turn on that was another another moment that wasn't specifically scripted that way it was just something that kind of was born out of a conversation like it'd be interesting if he's you know the headlights of his car come on and you know he can't see who's in the car and he's got to walk up and you know, the kind of great silhouette shot behind him of these like really bright headlights and um so those kind of couple of shots in there, the you know, he's he's up against the wall outside the bar and he's, like have these bright lights turn on and he turns and you know, seeing from behind the kind of silhouette and the, the headlights flaring the lens. I really kind of liked that that whole sequence visually. It was fun to do.
1: Yeah. I have one last question for you and I don't even know if this is if there even is an answer for this maybe I'm digging for something but the film is very self-aware there's references to horror films in the whole I mean that's kind of what the whole film is about um you know the 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 killers are reacting to the fact that their favorite franchise went in a way that they don't like i mean that's that's mm-hmm. kind of the premise of it so um when you are filming something like this, it is certainly not a comedy, but it has those moments where it kind of pulls you out and you're like, okay, I know I know that they know that we're kind of making a horror movie here. Is there something in the cinematography that you did that supported this idea of the film being self-aware?
0: Mm, it's an interesting question. Um, I think the answer is... No, I think the answer is that that we, that I really tried to just embrace what was in the story and what was in the script and tried to find ways to, you know, create some sort of tension or some sort of, um, you know, unease in, in the cinematography that added to the creepiness of it. Um, although I say that in, at the same time, you know, the scene that we talked about earlier with, um, with Wes, you know, wandering around the house, almost getting killed was very self aware, including in how we photographed it, because we knew we wanted to have these kind of fake out jump scares. So I don't know. Maybe it's a mix of both. I don't, I don't, there wasn't a, I wouldn't say that there was kind of an overall kind of intention to make the cinematography somehow self aware on, on top, because I think the content, the story and the script, kind of does that already. So really just tried to make the most kind of dynamic and immersive and, you know, emotionally charged imagery that, that I could that felt right for the, the moments in there.
1: Now, just between us, we'll keep it secret. You can trust us here at Go Creative Show.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Talk to us about a mistake you made on screen. Oh, I don't know if we have time for all of the mistakes. <laughs> of Pick one. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm
0: trying uh, You know, I I find that it's, it's, I mean, constantly kind of developing ideas more than, I'm trying to think if there's like a specific mistake. I mean, thankfully nothing that was, you know, egregious enough to, you know, delay any sort of, you know, part of the production. Um, But I don't know. I mean, you know I'm trying to think of a, an example I, I'm sure there was definitely times where you know we turn the lights on and we're like that doesn't look exactly like what I thought it would and let's do this and this and this and this which which happens um, I mean I wish I could give you some more kind of juicy it's good that you can't answer to that um, no I, now I what's going to happen is you're going to wake
1: up in the middle of the night you'll be like oh mm-hmm. my god I should have mentioned I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
0: I mean, certainly, always, you know, you get in there, and, and and it doesn't quite, you know, you had pre-rigging team in there, kind of rigging the lights, and and things aren't, you know, exactly right. So there's, you know, you're trying to make adjustments on the fly and move quickly and and all that. So, um, so that certainly happens. But I I can't think of one that was, you know, particularly. Agreed. Well, I least.
1: didn't notice one, so I guess that's mm-hmm. good as well. I love that. Yeah. Well. Oh, I can tell you one actually. That, ah, okay. That bothered, okay. Good. That I, knew me we were, that, I knew if we I if we were talking yeah. enough, we kept if we if we extended it, there, yeah. something would mm-hmm. pop into your mind. What do you got? This is bothers me, but probably nobody else
0: notices it. But it is it's a shot in the trailer, <clears throat> in the opening sequence, um, where Ghostface is is walking towards um, Jenna Ortega's character. And we're looking up at Ghostface, and there's a kind of chandelier that's over the kitchen island. And um, if you look closely, there's like a little piece of black wrap that you can see. Just
2: no right way! Over,
0: right over the top of the lamp, and it just bothers me every time I see it. And it's, it's a shot that's in the trailer. but um,
1: I'm looking at the yeah, trailer right one, now. I will one got away. I will make sure we put a screen. <laughs> a screenshot. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. That oh I love put stuff it all,
0: like that. Put it all over the internet.
1: Yeah, exactly. I love um, stuff like that. All right. Well, there you yeah. go. See that that's our little that, that's just for us. You yeah. know, that's just mm-hmm. for us. And we appreciate it. <laughs> the movie, it's called <laughs> Scream. Yes, Scream, of course, the 2022 version. It's in theaters now. Um great film. It was really fun talking to you. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences about it. Um, where can people go online to find more about you?
0: Um, you can go to my website, which is just brettjutkowitz.com. If you can figure out how to spell the last name.
1: Um, (laughs) and I'm on Instagram, uh, at DP Brett. DP Brett. Well, they can certainly spell that one. DP Brett. We'll put links to all of that in the show notes as well. Brett Judkowitz, thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, I wanna thank Brett Judkowitz, director of photography for Scream, for coming on the show and talking to all of us and giving us a little bit of a little hint there. So, next time you look at the trailer for Scream, look for the piece of gaff tape. I love love stuff like that. Uh, And thank you so much, Brett, for coming on and talking to us. I also wanna thank our sponsor, Filmmakers Academy go to filmmakers academy it's time to master your craft we love those guys and we're so thankful of their support they do really really nice stuff over there so check it out for yourself go creative forward slash filmmakers academy and you get 10 percent off with promo code go 10 so check that out for yourself i want to thank connor crosby who produces this show and does it so so well find him at ignitionvisuals.com and Dave Siegel from Siegelsound.com. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. So uh, thank you, Dave. And you can find both of those guys on our website. Of course, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube where you can not only hear the show but see the show. And please, please subscribe to us there as well. We're finding a lot of people watch it but they don't subscribe, so please do. It makes a huge difference for us, and uh, we really appreciate it. So, so go to YouTube, hit subscribe, and we will be so, so happy. Our hearts will be warmed. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you fi- wanna find out what's going on with me, I post all the time on my Instagram of things for Go Creative Show, some behind the scenes of you know films that are popular right now, what's going on, and also stuff going on in my own company. Tons of behind the scenes, there. So I'm pretty active there and would love for you to give me a follow at Ben Consol. Thank you for joining us today. And we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.